greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zaffaro, and this is the feature episode for October 2021. Now, most feature episodes uh, have a single author interview in two parts uh, that uh, goes on for about 40 minutes or so. For reasons I will explain later, we have two separate interviews uh, this month. Uh, First up is William Kent Kruger, who I'm sure many of you know if you are mystery readers. Uh, And secondly, we have uh, a lesser-known but very interesting writer, Maria Marati. So we'll get to those interviews and talk to both writers in just a little bit. Uh, But first, I want to turn things over to the sponsor of Wrong Place, Right Crime, and that is Down and Out Books. And here to tell us some of the August releases coming from that publisher is Lance Wright. Hi, Frank. And we're entering the fourth quarter of the year with a solid lineup of new titles, three of which I'll introduce you to today. Let's start with Velvet Elvis by Greg F. Gaffune. Sonny, the central character, is having a bad day when his old partner in crime offers to bring him in on a caper to rob a velvet painting vendor that promises to yield some quick money. He has to listen but nothing has prepared Sonny for the vortex of mayhem and madness he's about to fall into. And from Joe Ricker comes his latest crime novel, All the Good and Evil, a tale of two bouncers at a townie bar in southern Maine who slip out one night to rob some local businesses, but a riptide of repercussions might be too much for them to handle. And I want to mention a new music theme anthology, Trouble No More, edited by Mark Westmoreland, where 21 contributors bring the rough living of the Southern rock genre to the page and communicate the ache of the blues. Thanks again for having me, Frank, and I'll check in with you again next month. All right. Thank you, Lance. Some good books to check out, folks. Uh, Down and Out publishes a lot of gritty crime fiction, so if you enjoy that, you should check them out. Uh, Their website is downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Uh, Well, our first guest really doesn't need any introduction. Um, He's been uh, writing books set in Minnesota uh, for some time and has won a number of awards that uh, I'll touch on in the interview. Uh, He writes very elegant prose and uh, is is fun to read for that reason if you have a love of language. And, uh, of course, I'm speaking of William Kent Kruger, uh, who writes the Cork O'Connor series, uh, as well as some standalones. And, uh, let's, let's, let's just jump right in and talk to him. Uh, well, hey, Kent, welcome to the show. A pleasure to be with you, Frank. Thanks for having me. I actually, uh, became aware of you rather late in your publishing career. It was in 2014 at a conference, uh, a Killer Nashville conference that I think you were a keynote speaker or somehow featured at the conference. And it was when Ordinary Grace was, uh, you know, was the newest book of yours. Uh, and I went right out and, and picked it up and read it as a result of going to one of your panels or your keynote speech or, you know, a couple different places that I, I heard you really impressed, uh, my wife and I both. And so uh, that was my introduction to you. So I'm actually not f- very familiar with the Cork O'Connor series. Uh, that was my entree into William Kent Kruger. So, uh, probably not the typical way people get to know you. 
actually more and more it's becoming that way. I have two standalone novels out there. Ordinary Grace was the first and this Tenderland, uh, its companion novel came out in 2019. Mm -hmm. And um, more and more, I am finding that people are discovering my work as a result of those two stories rather than the Cork O'Connor series. But very often the comment is, you know, I read this Tenderland, loved your work, had to read Ordinary Grace, loved that, then decided to give the Cork O'Connor series a try and I'm loving that. So it doesn't matter when or how you come to my series, I'm just glad you finally discover me. Well, I, and I definitely want to talk about Cork O'Connor and the latest uh, book. But as long as we're talking about Ordinary Grace, uh, that book was, you know, huge when it came out. I mean, it won, I mean, just a few awards that it won. Uh, if you'll indulge me momentarily, it won the Edgar, uh, the Anthony, the McCavity, the Barry, the Squid Award, uh -huh. I guess, which was the Left Coast Crime, which is one of the conferences I like to attend. It won the Silver Falchion Award at that uh, Killer Nashville conference that I first uh, became aware of you. Um, and so, like, and at that conference, it was like, wow, this guy's a really big deal. How come I haven't heard of him? What's, what's, how limited is my horizon that I haven't come across him? And, uh, you know, I read the book and it was a, a very, very well written book. And, and the setting was, very vivid. There was no, you know, you, that's the magic of a good historical, good historical fiction, right? It, is it draws you into the time and a play and place where the events are happening. And I felt very much like I was in, uh, I think 1963, 61, 61, 61, yep. 61 in, in Bremen, uh, right. In Bremen, New Bremen, Minnesota. Minnesota. New Bremen, Minnesota, which is another interesting thing. Um, you know, I mean, there's a large German population there in the Great Lakes area, and Bremen is a you know is a, a Germanic city, and so New Bremen makes me think some Germanic-based uh, people probably settled there initially. Yeah, the town that it is based on a, a real town called New Ulm is in fact uh, very Germanic. It was uh, founded and planted by Germans, so uh, a very orderly city. Anyway, that's a lot of me talking to get to the point that uh, that that you did a fantastic job of of the setting and the time of the time and the place. Uh, how difficult was that for you? Do you know, I did a lot of research to make sure that the uh, the songs that I included in the in the story would really have been released by then. Um, I went back and checked. You know, how much were things costing back in 1961? What were the important events of the day that I might be able to include in the story, sort of as guideposts uh, to everyone. Uh, but so much of it simply came out of my own memory. Um, one of the reasons I wrote that story was I'd been looking for, um, for a piece that might allow me to go back and recall an important period in my own life, the summer I was 13 years old. For those who, who are listening who might not know the story, it is uh, narrated by a man named Frank Drum, who in his 50s is looking back on the summer he was 13 years old and recalling the events of that summer. So I wanted to go back and recall the events of the summer I was 13 years old and evoke them in such a way that I could use bits and pieces of my own life, my own experience to create that story. So the drum family at the heart of it, that uh, my own family was the template for the drums. Uh, the town of uh, New Bremen is very like the small Midwestern towns where I'd spent my adolescence. I took bits and pieces of the places that were important to me, and I popped them right right into the novel. I took characters out of my past, put them in the story. So, yeah, 
um, I did a lot of work to make sure that it felt right in time and place. But it sounds like you were well equipped to do that work. I mean, you had the baseline memories and and didn't have to necessarily research those types of things. I mean, you, I mean, if a if a twenty year old wanted to write about nineteen sixty one, that would be a very different <laughs> proposition, right? Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to see the work of a twenty year old trying to. Um, <laughs> well, there's the danger of nostalgia in a way. Is if it's nostalgic for a certain period. I mean, I I'm, I'm a little younger than you, not much, um, but uh, you know, my thirteen year summer would have been. Um, 1971. So I guess I'm 10 years younger than, than, than roughly than you are. And you know that if you wrote about that now, people would be calling it an historical novel. Doesn't that just, uh, (laughs) it blows my mind. (laughs) It is crazy to think of, of how many things have changed and everything. Um, but you know, even just being 10 years removed from that time period, you know, the danger for a reader like me reading, that book that's being among other things nostalgic for that time period is the the the, the nostalgia might not translate because that you know it's it, it can be sometimes based on very shared experiences and so but i felt like you transcended that i i felt like you were able to make me nostalgic for a time i never lived in and i think that's the success of a good nostalgic novel i mean stephen king did that with with the uh, uh, you know the the body uh, the body stand- yeah yeah the, one the of the greatest evocations of uh, adolescent male relationships you're mm-hmm. ever going to read that is just a terrific novella and i have to admit that i had read uh, the body and just uh, adored that work and so wanted to make sure that what i created felt authentic in the way that uh, stephen king was able to make his relationships feel authentic um, and, you know, in terms of nostalgia, um, I think of it, the problem with nostalgia is if you're not careful, it becomes model and reminiscence. And right. uh, and that just ruins a good story. Um, so rather than, you know, shoot for nostalgia, what I was shooting for was the recreation of a time I remembered well. Um, and that in so many of its elements, it doesn't matter about the time frame. It could have been in 1971 or 1981 in a small town because so many of the elements of small town life, um, it, mm-hmm. that's universal. And I get I get emails from readers all the time telling me how, you know, I grew up in Florida or I grew up in uh, in the suburb of New York City. And I I get it. You felt like you had recreated my my adolescence. So I think it's it, you know, if you tap into what's universal, uh, I think you try to stay, you're, you're on safe ground. I, absolutely. I mean, then the only thing that changes is, you know, is the, is the, is the dress setting, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's pop rocks instead of, uh, uh, you know, uh, houndstooth hard candy or something, you know I mean? It, it's, 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 uh, the tunes Motley, are Motley, Motley, yeah, Motley crew instead of Elvis. Yeah, you know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, would you say that ordinary grace is it definitely has some spiritual elements to it um, or religious elements, uh, which is another area that you have to, I think, tread wisely to be more universal. I mean, certainly there's a market for a specific kind of religious fiction, and, and that's what people reading that market expect and want. But for a broader audience, you have to kind of be a little more balanced and I wouldn't say careful necessarily, but uh, certainly mindful. Was that an element uh, when you wrote this book, something that you considered and how did you approach it? 
Yeah, I have never considered Ordinary Grace to be a religious book. I'm uh, I'm very skeptical about religion. I think I think I I think we're all on a spiritual journey, and so I wanted to talk about the importance of the spiritual journey. But uh, because I uh, grew up within the confines of a of a Christian tradition, and I'm now a Methodist, um, I chose to speak about it in terms of that particular, you uh, know, um, religious context, but it's not really a religious, it's not about religion, it's about the spiritual journey, it's about uh, the journey to forgiveness, it's about the journey to acceptance, it's, uh, it's about the importance of the spiritual journey that we're all on, so uh, yeah, I, I had no qualms about approaching that whatsoever, although I was aware that I needed to, to tread very carefully so that it wouldn't be religious so that it wouldn't be thought of as a Christian novel, which is just fine for people to write Christian novels, but that's not me. And if you were to read This Tender Land, it also is about the spiritual journey. And if you were to read uh, many books in the Cork O'Connor series, you would see that there is very often um, an undercurrent that deals with the spiritual journey. It's an important issue for me, and so I don't mind at all weaving it into the fabric of the stories that I tell. And it, it is as you mentioned before something universal. Now, Tenderland is is billed as a companion piece to Ordinary Grace. And is that the way that it's a companion piece? Because it's very similar in, in that sense? Or are there story connections? Because it's set about 30 years prior. Right. Um, this Tenderland takes place in the summer of 1932, deep in the Great Depression. I call them companion novels because they're both set in southern Minnesota rather than the great north woods of my Cork O'Connor series. And they are both set in earlier times. Ordinary Grace, the summer of 1961, this Tenderland, the summer of 1932. And they both deal with very similar themes. The spiritual journey is important. The question of family, what are the forces that divide families? What are the forces that hold families together or create families? Um, how do we achieve the difficult thing called forgiveness? All of those are uh, are ways in which I I think of them as companion novels. And the, the standalone that I'm at work now uh, on is um, is a, will be a companion to both this Tenderland and Ordinary Grace for exactly those same reasons. You live in Minnesota now, but you and I do share a little locational uh, overlap in that you were raised in uh, in Hood River, Oregon, or spent part of your time as, as a youngster there. What? How old were you during that time period? I was in Hood River from my eighth grade year through my junior year, so four years. And you did some timber work uh, in your life as well. Yeah, that was not in Oregon, which, you know, was a big timber state, of course. Sure. Uh, I did my logging in Southern Colorado in the mountains there. And when you say you did logging, what does that, what does that entail? I mean, for people think about that, that are maybe removed from these sort of settings. What, what does that mean? I did timber work. I chopped down trees with an ax. I mean, I doubt that, right? I mean, no, I was not uh, the guy who felled the trees. That was what was called a limmer and bucker. Mm. And a lim you're going, ah, oh, so you know what a limmer and I did is. limmer for two days. I did that two days. And I'll tell you why after you explain what a limmer is. <laughs> so, so for folks out there who don't know anything about uh, timber, when once the tree is felled, it has to be, the limbs have to be cut off it. And it has to be cut into sections so that the timber can be hauled off to be milled. And so that's what you do. You walk down the trees with a, a very heavy chainsaw. 
cutting off the limbs, all of the limbs, and then measuring and cutting it into sections. It, it was, so we were working at about 10,000 feet. Oh. Um, it's, yeah, it's difficult enough to begin with, but when you're at 10,000 feet, imagine trying to catch your breath uh, while you're logging. It was tough work. It was very tough work. It, it's very hard work. I, I did it for two days, so I'm, I'm something less than a manly man, I think. <laughs> Did you do this in Oregon, in the mountains there? Uh, this was up in Washington after I got out of the service. And I, before I came on the job as a police officer, I did a whole bunch of things just to put bread on the table and had sort of a loose family connection with an independent um, uh, uh, lumber guy and and they needed a, a limmer. And, and so I went out and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I'd cut wood with my dad when I was a kid, but I you know, was layman at best. And the first day was just exhausting. I mean, I'd never worked. I don't think I ever worked so hard yeah. at any job ever, but then it also, it starts early. Like I had to be up at three 30 in the morning to get to the yep. site by, you yep. know, first light you're going. And so that all sucked, but you know, it was, it, you do make decent money at it. And so I was going to, you know, I was all gung ho to stick with it, even though I was exhausted. And that second day I'm wearing these, the, you know, the leather chaps that they give sure. you to wear, you know, protective, they cover the front of your, of your legs there. I'm limbing along and hit a knot or something, or didn't handle the chainsaw correctly, or I did something that caused it to kick back. And that chainsaw kicked back just far enough to cut through the leather chap and like halfway through my denim jeans. Like that was where oh it, the force took it to right at where my femoral artery ran. Oh and, my God. And so I took a few breaths and I finished out the before lunch segment. This was pretty early in the day. And I sat there at lunch and then it really started, I'm staring down at this, you know, slash mark and everything. And I'm like, if I cut myself out here, I'm dead. But there's no way we're getting to, to any kind of medical assistance in time where we're out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so I, I called no joy. I just, I, you know, I said, no joy. I'm going below the hard deck. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm done. You know, that was that, that very quickly told me this was a, not only a job that's hard work, but it's dangerous. And yeah. uh, I, I wasn't ready for that kind of danger. So I went into police work instead. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the frying pan into the fire, if you ask me. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess uh, I felt like I had more control over it, oddly yeah. enough. Uh, but uh, I wanted to explore your Cork O'Connor series. That's, at, at, by my count, it's at, book 18 is is the one that just came out that we're going to talk about here. 18 books starting in 1998 with Iron Lake. Uh, all of them have place names as part of the title. That's kind of the theme. I guess my first question for you is, you know, you create this character, Cork O'Connor, very interesting uh, ethnic background that I'd like you to talk about. But when you created this character and wrote this first book, did you ever envision or hope or think that you'd be writing about this 18 books later? Yeah, you know, I think, Frank, if you were to ask any author of a long running series, whether he or she thought it would, you know, go on as many books as the, as they often go on, uh, we would... Uh, as I am right now laughing, uh, you know, when I wrote Iron Lake, I just wanted to write a manuscript that was good enough. Somebody might actually want to publish it. But uh, but about, you know, three quarters of the way through that particular novel, the first in the series, I um, I realized I was creating relationships that were so complex. I wasn't going to be able to wrap them up in that one novel. And so I thought, where exactly do I want my characters to be?
All right, folks, if that seemed like a weird place to end an interview, it's because it is. I unfortunately had some technical issues that I was not able to overcome. That's been a pretty rare event uh, on this show, but it has happened. And unfortunately, I lost the rest of Kent's side of the interview, which is very disappointing because he had some very interesting things to say about the Cork O'Connor series and specifically about the newest book in that series, A Lightning Strike. I'm disappointed that you didn't get to hear that part of the interview. Kent is a very personable guy, very uh, eloquent, uh, describes the writing process really well, his own mindset very well, uh, and he's fun to talk to. We had a nice exchange uh, for another 20 minutes or so. I guess no good crying over spilt milk. I do apologize once more. I did what I could to try to rescue it, but uh, uh, I won't bore you with what caused it, but uh, lesson learned on my part uh, not to switch headphones in the middle of an interview. Uh, but that doesn't mean the show is over. Let's uh, let's get some book reviews here to lighten things up. Uh, this month we're going to hear from Elizabeth Splain, James Swallow, Sarah Adlaka, and Sheila Lowe, all with some book recommendations for you this month. Take it away, folks. Hey, this is Elizabeth Splain, author of Devil's Grace, and I'd like to recommend Les Parisiennes by Anne Saba. It talks about the women uh, during World War II Paris and how they stood up to the Nazis and how others collaborated. So anyone who is interested in World War II and or women and or that entire area should absolutely positively read that book. Her name is Anne Saba, and she wrote Les Parisiennes, The Parisians. This is James Swallow, the author of the best-selling Mark Dane series. The most recent book I've read, which I really enjoyed, was Layover in Dubai by Dan Fesperman. Uh, recommended to me by a friend. I really didn't have any idea about what I was going to read going into it. But it's a, an interesting, twisty little thriller about a guy working for a corporation who has, as the title suggests, a layover in Dubai. But his um, corporate partner is killed when they're visiting uh, a cat house one evening, everything starts to come apart, and this guy's entire life just self-destructs. So we follow this guy through the the seedy back streets and the glitz and the glamour of Dubai. We also get involved with a very interesting uh, local police officer. And together we have these these two guys in this interesting kind of odd couple kind of uh, combination figuring out the the bad guys behind this plot. And I really enjoyed it. It's got a great sense of place, great granular detail, and uh, a really fun authorial voice. Layover in Dubai by Dan Fesperman. I'm Sarah Adlaka, author of She Wouldn't Change a Thing. And I am currently reading and definitely recommend Aggie Bloom Thompson's debut, I Don't Forgive You. It is a identity theft mystery thriller. So I think we can all relate to that these days fake Tinder accounts, fake Facebook accounts, um, definitely a page turner and one you won't want to put down. So Aggie Bloom Thompson's debut, I Don't Forgive You. My name is Sheila Lowe, and I'm the author of two series. The main one is the Claudia Rose Forensic Handwriting series about a forensic handwriting examiner who does work like I do. And the other one is a new one called the Beyond the Veil series. It's paranormal suspense. 
as far as book recommendations, my very favorite author is John Sanford, who writes, um, well, he wrote lots of books, um, all the prey books about uh, Lucas Davenport. And Lucas started out as a policeman, and now he's a U.S. Marshal. And I just love the way Sanford writes, because Lucas is a superhero, but he's human. And he's just, the dialogue, the setting, everything, the pacing, it's just, the only thing I don't like about Sanford is that he always has some scene that's really violent, and I tend to skip over those. But other than that, he's my favorite. All right, some cool recommendations, a very different ones. Uh, something there should should catch your fancy. Uh, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, point you in the direction of Kent, uh, William Kent Kruger's Lightning Strike uh, or do what I plan on doing here and uh, grabbing the very first Cork O'Connor book, uh, Iron Lake, and starting that series. Um, but if you do choose to start with Lightning Strike, uh, he did have some interesting things to say about that uh, and how that book takes place in Cork O'Connor's 12th year, when, right before uh, a number of rather big events happen that are, are life-changing for him. I suppose you could argue you could uh, read Lightning Strike and then go back to the beginning and uh, and you'd have some additional insight into the character. Hey, uh, you're the reader. You get to do whatever you want. Uh, what I want to do right now is uh, share another interview I did this month uh, with you. I got the chance to uh, speak to uh, Maria Marati, uh, who is a retired academic uh, and who writes uh, some books that uh, have an Italian backdrop. And I'll let her tell you the rest uh, about it. Uh, so let's hear from Maria Marati. Well, buongiorno, uh, Maria. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so I say buongiorno because you are uh, Italian. From Rome. From Rome to Rome. Oh. Yep. And, and your your books take place. Uh, they have an Italian flavor to them. Um, but you are a retired academic. Um, what, what kind of, what did you teach? Many things, actually. I have a PhD in English. I taught English. I taught Italian. I taught... Um, Comparative literatures, women's studies, film. Um, so you see. Wow. <laughs> so it's a lot, e a lot easier to say a retired academic than to list that. Uh, it takes up a lot <laughs> of space. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> did, yeah. you, uh, where, did you teach in one place or all over the place? Oh, I, I taught in several places. University of Rome, where I taught American literature. Then I moved to the States. I was married to a mathematician, American mathematician. So I moved for family reasons. And um, I taught in Italian, English, and, and so on at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Then I was offered a one-year position at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and it was the end of my career. I ended up, um, I decided to move on at that point, but yeah, the teaching and, and um, you know, everything I did and the writing was interesting, and uh, I enjoyed that part. I did not enjoy the politics. <laughs> <laughs> who, who does? Who does? Uh, and they are rife. Uh, I, I'm Ooh. friends with several uh, several writers who also have an academic background. And, and I, I was a police officer myself, and there's politics there as well. Oh, yeah. my, wife, my wife is a teacher, and 
we've often talked about how similar the two jobs are in in many ways, including the politics within the institution. Yes. Um, at least uh, where you were teaching, a uh, pretty similar climate to Rome there in Santa Barbara and uh, Santa it is, Cruz. It is warmer in, in Santa Barbara. It's very warm compared to Rome. And Santa Cruz was more like Rome, which could be a cold winter, but, but then warmer after that. Santa Barbara was more like Napoli, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> as far as climate goes, yes. Nothing um, else. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah, probably not. No. The whole <laughs> Very true. I, that was actually one that we went to on a trip there, my, my parents and my wife and I, 2013. And uh, surprisingly, uh, Napoli was one of our favorite uh, portions of the trip. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Naples is a big part of the Etruscan Princess. Because that's where the, the Camorra, which is the <laughs> uh, Neapolitan brand of the mafia so that's the most recent book in your series um who who is the protagonist in your series it is the detec detective uh, captain fusco and his uh, girlfriend and fiance later wife who is a sleuth <laughs> she's a, a university professor who writes on crime on uh, noir and things like that. But then um, she gets interested in real crime in life. And um, so um, they use different approaches. I use that because they different approaches. And, and in a sense, they have a different approach to life. And that's part of some conflict and confrontations, couple interaction. And uh, it's... It, I think it creates some um, some depth to the characters because for me characters are important, just as important as the plot and the story. Yeah, it's almost it sounds as if they have very different paradigms in in the in the way that they think and approach things. Absolutely, yes. The the Etruscan Princess, the most recent uh, installment of this series, uh, you said takes place somewhat in Napoli. What is the uh, premise for this book? What's at stake? Uh, it's, there is a kidnapping. Um, they are on vacation. He's not going to do anything. He doesn't want to do anything. He just want to be on vacation. And it is a romantic vacation. He wants to convince his girlfriend to marry him. Uh, she's more, um, I don't know. Yeah, okay. So anyway, <laughs> they, they start this vacation on the premise that they're going to have fun and see. And But then they witness a kidnapping, first ah. chapter. And that gets them going. <laughs> the yeah. the area there of Naples is, you know, right there on the Amalfi Coast, which is one of the more uh, well-known vacation areas. Um, we actually stayed in a town called Priano, which is near Positano, which is the more better known area there. Uh, the, I bring it up just to say that it is a very gorgeous uh, setting. Yes, it is beautiful. The city itself is beautiful. Naples is very interesting and very beautiful. And at the same time, it's rich, culturally rich, and at the same time, criminally rich. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that at some point, the question comes up, how can those two things exist? You know? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, we saw that actually in a couple of different ways while we were there, but that's for another conversation, I guess. Um, on the culturally rich side, um, for people who aren't super into Italy and, and don't quite have their places down, um, uh, Naples is probably the largest city near Pompeii, which is a real destination. Um, 
But all of the things that they took from Pompeii ended up in the uh, National Archaeological Museum right there in, in Naples. Just for the aside, my mother was an archaeologist. So when I was seven year old, she took me to Pompeii to show me where she used to dig. <laughs> <laughs> that is very cool. That is that is very cool. So uh, any archaeology uh, books on the future then uh, coming up? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> How about in this series? You have an Italian cop uh, married to a uh, an academic sleuth. Um, where are they going next? Well, they're going back home, actually, after the, <laughs> the, the book, book two, to go back home and live their lives. But then... It, you know the pandemic starts, and and the, and so they stay at home a lot. And so he tells her the stories. This is the third one that I'm writing now. I'm planning now. Uh, that he, in the evening, um, he he tells her the stories of his career when he was a, a cop in in New York, and and she's a good writer. So she listens, and then she go, she rewrites them from a more artistic point of view. So that's uh, that's what happens on. <laughs> They cooperated. They decided to cooperate since the the cases are already solved, but they're interesting. So you you get the oral version told by him, and then you get to see the written version that she does as well. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. Um, so you're very you're very uh, timely with this, uh, incorporating the, the pandemic into the story. That's uh, a lot of people are avoiding that. Yeah, I know. I, I was told so that I'm taking a chance. Well, I said, well, that's a, a chance that I have to take. It is two years of this, and I don't see the end in sight. So we need to see what we can get out of this. Well, and it's a big, uh, you know, global event. It's not just, uh, you know, just Absolutely. just a small uh, regional event by any means. It's not even a national event. It's, no. it's, glo- it's global. You're right. And in, in, in writing uh, in, the, in the U.S., if you set anything around 2001, the, you know, the watershed event was the uh, attack on the, on the World Trade Center there. And how to approach incorporating that is always uh, uh, something you have to be thoughtful, uh, thoughtful of. Uh, but your, your third book sounds almost like an old style, uh, you know, 1800s, uh, you know, the, the storm is outside, let's huddle in the parlor and tell a story sort of approach, kind of a throwback. It's, it's very uh, cool, cool idea. Yep. Well, the, uh, the, the most recent book here from Maria Marati is the Etruscan princess. A third one is on the way. Um, and, uh, Maria, I want to say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you too. Ciao. Ciao. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, Maria Marotti, uh, interesting way to approach uh, storytelling. I like that uh, sort of, uh, uh, not exactly a rash showman, but uh, different perspective approach uh, that she's making in her, in her newest book. Uh, and talking to her, if you couldn't tell, certainly brought me uh, back to the trip I took to Italy almost a decade ago now, uh, eight years anyway. So check out The Etruscan Princess, and uh, while you're at it, uh, don't forget to grab something by William Kent Kruger. All right, on our next episode of A Wrong Place or Right Crime, we're going to talk to Matt Fitzsimmons. His latest thriller, Constance, uh, is a little bit thriller, a little bit crime fiction, and a little bit sci-fi. So 
So some cross-genre writing at work there. Uh, that'll be next episode on Wrong Place or Right Crime. Frank Zafiro update for you. Uh, I just recently finished uh, a draft of Dirty Little Town. That's the seventh book in the River City series. Uh, if revisions go smoothly, um, I'm targeting late November as a release date. So for those of you that have been waiting for a new installment of River City, it's coming soon. All right, I want to say thank you to William Kent Kruger and offer my sincere apologies for the technical problems uh, that uh, cut short a great conversation. Uh, uh, check out Lightning Strike, the new Cork O'Connor uh, book. Uh, and I also want to say thanks to Maria Marati for coming on the show uh, and, and taking me back to uh, a great trip uh, to a great country, Italia, and hearing about the police officer and academic duo. It's a cool setup. Uh, check her out. Uh, thanks to both authors for coming on the show. Also for book reviews, thanks to Elizabeth Splane, James Swallow, Sarah Dlaka, and Sheila Lowe. Thanks to Down Now Books for being the sponsor. And most of all, as always, to you, the listener, thank you for being here. Thank you for giving your time uh, to these authors. And I, I hope you are finding folks that are worthy of your exploration. Please support them in any way you can, just like small businesses uh, if uh, you want authors to continue to create, uh, you've got to support the ones you like. Next week, Matt Fitzsimmons will be on the show. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs>